of God's word. Okay, so today we're in 1 John 2, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 17. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning of time. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in, in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen. You may be seated. So good to be with you all in person, and um, hopefully some of you are online. I heard that um, Barbara is with um, her son Nick um, in North Carolina watching online right now. So um, I don't know if that's still the case, but if you're watching, thanks so much for being with us. Um, we miss you, Nick, and I hope that you're doing well in the military. And it's so good to be with the rest of you. I see some new faces, and I really hope that you can take the time to take that bulletin and just tear out that section. We would love to um, um, just pray for you, get to know you, and, and also mail you a little gift of coffee. If you like coffee, that's what it's going to be. So I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. But um, what a wonderful this um, morning this is. I hope that you've had a good week. Good week? Good week? How about, how about bad week? Anybody? Tough week? Yeah, some of you? Not busy? Yeah. Busy and bad sometimes are the same thing, right? And busy and good are sometimes, right? It's busy. Right, yeah, so we all, we all have different experiences that we've had this week. Um, a lot, of, lot has happened and has gone on. I want to congratulate um, Victoria and Jay. They got married this week. Um, so give them a round of applause. So they're, they're, um, now they have five kids, <laughs> which is a blessing. And what beautiful children they are. And I think I see Jason's son with him. Is that true? Yeah, both of you. Okay, it's good to see you guys. God bless you. And we hope really soon that we can get back to normal so that we can have stuff for our kids again because we miss that, don't we? But, um, but thank you for being here, guys. Um, I, I was excited to hear that news this week and just I'm um, very glad for you both. But we're in, we're in 1 John today, and I hope that we, we 
um, approach it with just eager expectation um, to, that God is going to speak to us and that he is going to indeed um, have a message for you and for me this morning. You know that the, the Bible says that um, each word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when we approach the word of God, it's something that we know um, is not just a simple message from a, um, a man or a woman that was written many years ago, but these are God's words breathed out from the heart and character of God. And we're in the, this New Testament letter that we call 1 John. Um, John, the apostle, wrote this letter. And uh, what's interesting is that he also wrote some other books in the Bible, the Gospel of John. He also wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And, um, and it's interesting, Revelation chapter 2, the same author of our text writes this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Yet I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Oh, what a sad day to lose your first love. The loveless Christian life. It's described uh, by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all possessions to the poor, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. How is it possible, friends, that a Christian, that's who many of us claim to be, that Christians, and I'm not being hard on you, I ask this to myself, our eyes have seen the light of Christ, opened to it. We know that our sins are forever tossed into a forgetful sea, the deepest sea, so that God's justice is satisfied completely on Christ instead of us, and that he calls us beloved little children because of it. Yet somehow, we have hearts that harden and love gets sucked out of them, unmoved by even his love. Jesus said, you know what the greatest command is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But, oh, we're just so angry, aren't we? So empty, so hopeless, so faithless. Yet here, here remains this rule of life for every Christian. Love the Lord your God. You know, there are um, things in this world called monks. You ever heard of, of a monk? So monks, you know, th this is an ancient sort of practice where they developed what they call a rule of life. And that's the title of my sermon this morning. A rule of life or in, in the monastic life is a, basically a daily rhythm. These are spiritual disciplines. And in, in its most pure form, they're, they're meant to provoke their own hearts to love the Lord their God more fully and more completely to glorify him. Obviously, there are practices within various you know, denominations and whatnot that have perverted this more pure form, but what became to be just a very simple desire to love the Lord their God more fully. So friends, when, when we notice our heart shrinking and dying, the joy of life in Christ as, a, as maybe a thing of the past and darkness just that we once knew seems to be returning to us, we must determine to, again, take up this 
rule of life, this daily and simple instruction to love God, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our strength. So this morning, I want to talk about this with you guys. I got four things to say. <clears throat> I want to talk about the, the object of love, the test of love, the power of love, and not that song. What's that song? You know, the power of love, Huey Lewis. But I want to talk about the object of love, the test of love, the power lo of love, and the enemy of love. Four things, okay? So let's, let's open this up by talking about the object of love. Dear friends, John writes in verse 7, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have heard since the beginning. So in other words, we got no excuse. This isn't news. This isn't something that we just discovered. Love as the rule of the Christian life is not a novel idea in the Bible. The very first words written down by Moses, right? So what, what were the first words written down? It was the law, right? The very first words written down was the law. Now God had spoken to prophets prior to Moses, but the, the first actual Bible with pages was given to Moses. And what were those first words? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, they included this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands I give you today are to be on your hearts. And they begin with those. Three of the four Gospels record Jesus saying that Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the summary of all the law. Everything he instructs, all of his goodness, all of his rightness, springs forth with the simple desire to love God. And I, I, I look at my own life personally, and I can see very clearly that those times that I was rebellious towards God, it was very simply because I was loving something more than him, and I didn't prefer him. Friends, we have to ask ourselves a very simple question. This morning... Did our hearts swell with love for God? Do you love God, friend? Like, really love him? You see, he's sort of important enough for us to get our butts in the seat on a Sunday morning. Right? There's something going on there. And it's so much more than that, though. God doesn't want you just here for an hour. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. And friend, if we don't spur each other on to that end, then we're really here without a good purpose. Because the, the goal of the Christian life, the rule of life, is simply this, to love the Lord your God. Do you wake up each morning with this thought, intentionally having this thought? No, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to go to work. I'm so frustrated because this happened yesterday. But like, Actually, take your thought captive. Push it down and say, I, today I'm going to love my God. That's going to be my chief objective when I wake up because he first loved me. So I'm going to love him. If you simply do that, friends, that singular goal to love God today more than you did yesterday, light is going to shine on everything else in your life. It's going to shine on your victories, on your disappointments, on your defeat. You're going to see all of that through the light of God's love. And when you see those things through the light of God's love, oh, they're so much more bearable. God is not concerned, friend, with how much money you saved. Is that the first thing you think of when you wake up? And what am I going to do to make that sale? 
Your love, his love for you isn't dependent on your performance, how well you do at your job, or as a mom or dad. God's love is unconditional. He doesn't love you less when you sin, even. Because your sin in Christ, by faith, is forgiven. It's gone. So you cannot move the needle of God's love downward. You can't do it. His chief concern with you, friend, every day, very simply, he wants you, to, you and I to do this one thing. Today I will love the Lord my God. Oh, is that your chief concern? Is it mine? When our eyes begin to open from, from a night's sleep, what is on your mind? Could I encourage you to think about this in those sort of light sleep moments when you're, you're becoming aware that you're alive still and that you're about to approach another day? Oh, could you say this to God? Oh, God, how I love you. And help me, to, help me to remember this day that everything can go wrong, but I will not lose your love, and that's what I need the most. My mom and my dad and my friends, and all of them can betray me. All of them can give me a hard time. I can lose my job. All of this stuff can go wrong, but the love of God, the needle doesn't move. So I love you. So I don't have to slander people. I don't have to gossip about people. I don't have to be so bitter and angry about life and all the things that maybe I wanted that didn't work out because I have the love of God. Oh, isn't that great, friend? I am writing to you not a new command, but an old one. How simple, how marvelous. It says in verse 8, Yet I am writing you a new command. Huh? <laughs> Make up your mind, John. Is it old or new? Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. An old command, as old as creation, yet it's new. What is he talking about? Friends, it's new here in this context because for the first time, the church, God's people, could see the love of God portrayed in the risen Christ. That love in its fullness had not been seen like that yet in the history of humanity. God had not shown himself like this in his, in his love when he parted the Red Sea, though that was a demonstration of his love. He didn't show his love like this when he told them to sacrifice bulls and goats for the remission of sins. No, that love was preparing the way for a greater display of love. That was sort of like a love letter saying that the bridegroom is coming. See, the, the greater love was the coming of Jesus Christ, and for th these hearers, that was new. That is the love that God is. Jesus Christ has come for you and died for you and put himself in your place so that you can have an eternal, never-ending, unchanging love with the Father. Isn't that great? So I write you an old command, but a new one too as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's also, it's new in another way, I think. Because each and every single day, we can wake up again and realize this love afresh in our hearts. It's new every day, every morning. It doesn't grow stale or old. And if it does, it's only because our fallen hearts have forgotten the spirit that can infuse it again with life. 
It's new because it is a command we must obey every day. I will love the Lord my God with all my strength, most. That love seems to be an old love at times. Like, you know, Brother Kyle, I remember sort of having what you're describing with God years ago. And this and that happened in my life, and something, I just sort of drifted away from it. I lost my first love. Our hearts have seemed to harden, but friends, they can have new life breathed into it again because it is not an old command, simply, but a new one. That each day you have another chance to love God afresh, like the first day you loved him. Isn't that good news? It doesn't matter how far you've drifted. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've been made, that you have made or been made against you. You can wake up each day with an opportunity to confess your sin to the Lord your God and to love him afresh. Isn't that great? You don't have to look back at your Christian life. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you say, oh, I I remember back in the 90s. That's when I loved God. That's when things were awesome. That's not the Christian life, friend. The spirit doesn't change, and you still have him. Why is it better then than now? It shouldn't be. You see, what we're doing is we're looking through uh, through the eyes of the spiritual life with with worldliness. Because the best is yet to come, friend. That's what scripture says. So God is the object of our love, and we are the object of his. Isn't that great? What's the test of love? You say, I love God. I know what you're saying. Okay. Do you hate people? (laughs) Oh, no, I don't hate people. We'll get to that in a second because I think think you might. Um, (laughs) Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is not in the light. In other words, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you don't love God. That's the math that John is doing. If you hate someone, you cannot say that you love God. Because the love of God will cause you to be forgiving towards them. Now, we're going to get to this in a moment because that's not always easy, and I understand that. But let's talk about this. Hate is the antithesis of love. To say that you stand in the light of the love of God, and yet you have a heart that is bitter with hate towards a person or people, is to contradict yourself. But what does it mean to hate? You say, I don't hate anybody. Okay, we'll see. (laughs) how do you know that you're hating someone rather than loving them certainly it doesn't mean that you can't be angry when something an injustice happens to you the bible even says that there's a time for righteous indignation so it's not all forms of anger that are indication of hate the kind of hate that the bible forbids i want to talk about two of them okay the first kind of hate that the bible forbids is the kind that prefers ourself over others. When we do this, we hate our neighbor. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, Jesus said, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So hate is seen in in terms of devotion. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, it says, treat others as Christ has treated you, who loved Uh, loved um, the world and gave himself up for them. So a form of love versus hate is that we give ourselves up 
for each other. The command to love for the Christian is very simply a command to serve selflessly. And hate is an unwillingness to put anyone else before yourself. That's how we hate it. So it might not be like, wow, that guy's a real dirtbag, and I hope he gets it. And that's not, that's not always the way hate demonstrates itself. Hate demonstrates it itself first in the sense of preference. When you prefer yourself constantly over others, you are loving yourself and hating that person, according to Scripture. Second, the kind of hate that the Bible forbids is the kind that desires for another harm over healing. You say, oh, I, I don't desi- desire harm over healing for people. And I think what you mean, and what I mean at times, is we don't want them to, like, you know, blow up. We don't want a planet to fall on their head. Maybe sometimes you have wanted that. But, like, but we do kind of want to get the raise and not them. Right? We do kind of want them to, like, fail at something, maybe just a little minor. Not, not for them to be completely humiliated. or We just want them to get it get what they deserve. You see, friends, the kind of hate that the Bible forbids desires harm over healing, especially to our enemies. God says of the wicked, now these are his enemies. These are people that are idolatrous and have not want, not want nothing to do with him. He says this in Ezekiel, do I delight in their death? Would I rather them repent so that they might have life? So we're going to have enemies. We're going to have people abuse us and mistreat us. And you know hate has has turned to love and bitterness to forgiveness when you actually start wanting them to be rescued. It doesn't mean you pretend they didn't do something wrong. God doesn't do that. Do I delight in the death of the, the wicked? No, he still says they're wicked. And they need to repent. But I want them to so that they can have life. I don't want to banish them because they're toxic. How many people do we do that to on Facebook? Well, they're toxic, so I'm going to banish them. And some look, friends, sometimes I know you got to do that, okay, because that's true. But, like, do you really want their recovery and salvation and forgiveness in life? Do you want their, to see them promoted? You see what I mean? That's how you know hate has become love. When someone that clearly does not deserve it in your life who has grossly mistreated you with injustice, you actually start wanting them to know the love of God and the life that he provides. You want their promotion. You see, the kind of hate that the Bible forbids is this sort of hate that desires harm over healing. Now you say, oh, okay, but this is just for brothers and sisters, right? Like, in other words, you know, people in the church. Okay, does that make it any better? <laughs> right? It's still hard to do it with them. But before you're tempted to think that, the Bible says, love even your enemies. And the text that I just read said that, said that this applies to God's enemies. So this isn't just a brother or sister in Christ that we're called to love and not hate. The Bible says to love even our enemies. We know we love God when we desire good for people, even really bad people, that we prefer their needs over our own. The one that does not hate like this actually loves God. Isn't that interesting? When we start to love people, because in our minds, we're not loving them, we're loving God. 
Remember that wonderful passage where it says, when you give a cup of cold water to someone in need who is thirsty, you don't give it to them, you give it to me. Isn't that wonderful? When we actually realize that that's actually what we're doing, we're, we're demonstrating love for the Father and for his Son, Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about the power of love, not according to Huey Lewis. Some have tried to see in verses 12 through 14 sorts of like levels of maturity in the Christian life. And I, and I get why that they see that, and I think it's, it's something that's easy to do because it describes children and young men and fathers. Remember that, that passage that we read? So, it's, so some have tried to say that, you see, this is sort of how you progress in the Christian life. You can be a child with Jesus, a young man with Jesus, and you can be a father with Jesus, and all that is certainly true. But I think this passage is trying to tell us something a little bit different. This passage, I think, is reminding us of what the love of God can do in our lives. For all of us, no matter what your age, actual biological age, and no matter what your age spiritually as a Christian, this is what the love of God can do for you and has done for you. To know the love of God is to have these things, to possess them as a present identity of who you are. So John is saying that no matter what your age is, we can experience the innocence and trust of a child. So you're not old and jaded now, so you can't have faith anymore like a child would. See, what the love of God does for you when you love him and he loves you, and that exchange is happening, you begin to trust like a child. Right? You know him, it says. You can have the strength of a youth, even though that you're old. The love of God can give you strength like a youth. And friends, even if you are very young in Christ, you can have the wisdom of a patriarch. Remember Christ in the temple, how wise you are. And he was just a child. That's what the word of God and the love of God can do for us. No matter where we are, no matter how old or young we are in the faith. To know the love of God is to know according to that passage in verses 12 through 14, to know the love of God is to know that we're forgiven. Not just to think we are or to hope we are, but we stand confident that everything that we've done that has offended God is separated from us because of Christ. We stand in that position, and that's who we are. It, it's, it's to be free of the guilt and shame of our mistakes. It's gone because Jesus paid for it. It's to truly know him, not as a, distance, as a distant king, but what does, it say? what does it say? As a father, as a loving, close, caring, and attentive dad. It is to be an overcomer. I write to you, I, 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 I write to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Yes, even Satan cannot stand up against you when the love of God is in your heart. It stands as a guard, and it gives you the victory. And that's the truth. That's who you are. The over and over again, if you read this passage, you have, you have, you have, you have. It's saying this is your possession in Christ. Even if you don't feel it in any particular moment, you've overcome. You're the winner. You say, I feel like a loser. I failed in so many different ways. It doesn't matter that you feel like that. It matters what is true. And what is true is that Jesus is alive and he gives you victory and you win. That's true. So that's what I mean, friends. Wake up and say, I love God and he gives me the victory today. And that's true. And I'm not going to be, believe the lies that I tell myself every single day. 
because they're lies. And I'm going to love that jerk down the street. I mean, maybe don't say it like that. Right? To know the love of God is to overcome even the most powerful of enemies that we have out there, Satan himself. You have the victory over him. The love of Jesus wins, wins every single time. It defeats every temptation. It squashes every accusation. To know the love of God is to be strong. It's to have his word abiding in your heart, promises living in there, singing to your soul. That's what the love of God and loving God does for you. That is your standing. And it provides for you and holds these things for you as long as God is faithful and he always will be. Friends, your present possession in Christ by faith, whether you feel like it or not, is victory, strength, intimacy with God, and freedom from sin. That's your victory. Walk in it. Love him so that you can walk in it. Right? It's your birthright because you've been born again. And that's the power of love, Huey Lewis. But there's an enemy of love. <clears throat> it's possible <clears throat> to no longer walk in the light, to drift from it, and to have your heart hardened. Like we read in the book of Revelation, you have lost your first love. Oh, it can, you can return to it, but it's possible to drift away from it. <clears throat> and when you do, with it, go all the freedom that you experience, the free, the, at least your, your understanding. It doesn't go away. You are always forgiven. But the, the knowledge in the experience of your forgiveness is lost, so you begin to feel, experience the guilt and shame that you had before you knew Christ and the strength of his promise and the victory over the enemy. You begin to sense as if you were weak when you're actually strong. And why does this happen? Love for God wanes when we begin to prefer the created thing over the creator. When we want our will and the will of this world over his. Romans chapter 9, you know what it says? God, um, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It's because God preferred Jacob over Esau. It says, Jesus said again, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Friends, when you begin to prefer the world over God, you drift from him. His love begins to become cold in you. It's so easy for another master to steal your affection. Imagine a wedding day. And I, I know that I've given this example before to you. Um, I'll, I'll use it again, though, because I think it's powerful. But imagine a wedding day, and you're the groom, and you're waiting. Your bride, you know, the door's open in the back, and, and she looks at you, you look at her, and oh my goodness, this is the moment. She appears dressed in white, stunning, beautiful. Your eyes lock. She approaches, and your heart's racing. And as she gets a little bit closer and closer, you notice something. Her eyes are just a little off-center. You thought she was looking at you, but she's not. Who is she looking at? She's veering off. Her face is beaming. Her heart is fluttering. Her eyes are enraptured, but not for you. It should be. You're the groom. You got the tuxedo on. Who's she giving googly eyes to? And you notice, you look off to the left, your best man, smiling right back. 
what is going on here? Right? Oh, friend, can I ask you, there stands the groom. Are you looking at him or, or are you looking at his friend? Are you looking at Christ or are you loving his stuff? You see? John the Baptist's disciples were tempted to do, do this. This is his passage um, in the Gospels. John's baptizing. He's got all these crowds. Everyone wants to hear him speak. He's eating um, locusts, disgusting. We got to go see this guy, right? So let's go watch him. Thousands of people. Then one day, he baptizes Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, no one's going to see John anymore. They're going to see Jesus. Now John also was baptizing Adon. An argument developed between some, some of John's disciples. Rabbi, that man... Jesus, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you baptized, he's baptizing now, and now everyone's going to him. What happened to our crowd? We were famous. Everyone loved us. John replied, he said this, I am not the Christ. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And I am not the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. You don't belong to the next sale. And you don't belong to your husband or wife. You don't belong to children. You, your heart, belongs to the bridegroom. So stop making googly eyes at everything except him. Stop wanting, stop trying to prove yourself and affirm yourself through all of his creation rather than what he said. You see? He said, I am not the Christ. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine. It's now complete. The best man isn't standing on the groom besides the groom saying, why is the bride giving him all the attention? What about me? Right? Why doesn't she love me? She's not supposed to love you, doofus. She's supposed to love the bridegroom. Friend, you are supposed to prefer the bridegroom over all of his creation. All of his creation, all the stars, all the earth, everything that we know, even human government, husbands, wives, children, all of it, that was meant to give our hearts love for God. But instead, we love that instead of him. We say no to him and yes to all of his things. But John said, no way, not me. He must increase and I must decrease. To love the world, friends, is to take your eyes off the bridegroom and fix them on his friend, the best man, instead of the groom. All the wide world was meant to be a poem to us of God's love. Instead, we worship the gift instead of the giver. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know what loving the world means? It means loving good things more than the best thing. World in John's writing refers to the fallen world, the sinful world. But oftentimes, world can just mean something neutral. The trees, the sky, the stars, nothing wrong with those things. But there is something wrong with those things, though, when we love them more than the giver. We are never to prefer them over the creator. And could it be that much of our misery and our life and our coldness and our struggle and our lack of faith is because we have started to try to prove ourselves with God's things rather than God himself? Loving the world means loving good things more than best things. The best thing, which is God, 
and it also means it, gets from ba- it goes from bad to worse. It, it means loving bad things as if they were good. Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verse 20. <clears throat> they called good evil and evil good. And we, we love what God has forbidden. So not only does the best man, the good things of our world, steal our affection from our God, but we begin to wear hatred and anger and jealousy and vengeance. We adorn them like crowns, and we think we're right for doing it. And loving the world, according to this text, it takes three forms, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do not love the world for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. What is the lust of the flesh? It is the inward desire for those things that are opposed to God's nature. What God has said no to, we say yes to, and we pursue anyway. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. It's to covet. It's to see something that we want and to go after it and take it. We think it will satisfy us. We think it will affirm us, but it, but it won't. We treat it as, as, as if it's God. So we lust after our neighbor's wife. We lust after the next promotion. Whatever, the lust of the eyes, right? Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride of life is we got all that stuff, and aren't we something now? Look at me. If you, know, if you just worked a little harder, you'd be like me, right? The pride of life. All of this tempts the Christian daily, and the only deterrent to not be captured by a winking world is to wake up with this thought, today I will love and prefer my God, and I won't be tricked by Satan. I need his love because I need life. The world and its desires, let me close with this. You know it's passing away in verse 17. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You know that thing that you're just completely stressing yourself out over? That you just need it to be resolved in your life if you're going to be happy? Well, one day it's just going to be gone. And all that's going to be left is you and the Lord. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Real life, forever life, lasting life is found in the arms of God. And let me just add this as a balance. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God has made as long as it honors him. God has made food for us to taste and to enjoy. God has made marriage for us to enjoy and to love, children for us to enjoy and to love, but they are not the bridegroom they are the friend of the bridegroom. Amen? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And let's make googly eyes at him. <clears throat> love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Know the transforming power of his love as children, young men, and fathers. And do not love the world. Prefer it more than the Lord your God. Love him and let that be the rule of your life. And I hope that is your first thought of the day, that it continues with you throughout it, and that it is, that, that is your last, that the Lord loves me. Uh, and let me just close with this. You know who Karl Barth is? Some of you might. In the 20th century, he was a German theologian, arguably the, the most brilliant theological scholar of the 20th century. Some people even suggest of all of church history. His magnum opus, real page turner here, dogmatic theology. Guess how long this sucker was? 14 volumes long, 9,000 pages, 
over 6 million words. So this guy was a ferocious writer. It remains the longest work of theology ever written in church history. He probably wasn't married. (laughs) I don't know that for sure, but I don't think you can write that much if you're married. Now, there was a a Q&A at the University of Chicago in 1962. He had given a lecture at the University of Chicago in 1962, and there was a Q&A at it afterwards, and he was asked by this bright young student to summarize the essence of his six million words in one sentence. And you know what he said? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Friends, I hope that that is the summary of your faith, that it is the song that you sing when you wake, when you live, and when you lie your bed on your pillow. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. I pray, God, that each day I would love you. I would love my neighbor. And I would not love more the things you've made than you. Help us to do the same, God. Drive us to love each other with a selfless love, with a forgiving love, banish hatred from our hearts. Those people that we think of that did those unthinkable things to us, oh, let us remember the unthinkable things that we did to Christ as he hung on a cross for our sin. I pray, God, renew us, restore us, forgive us for the hardness of our hearts. I pray that you would bless our church, awaken us with your love, Bless us. And God, if there's anyone that doesn't know what the love of Christ is when he hung on a tree and rose again for life, friend, would you turn from your sin and trust in him? Would you follow him to the ends of the earth? Or would you give eyes to him and take them off of his creation? How we love you. God, bless the rest of our time now. We ask that you would just help us to continue to worship you well in Jesus' name. Amen.